All right. Thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen. And today we have a very special episode for you guys. Um, today we have Matthew Parker. He's the author of Monte Cassino, The Hardest Fought Battle of World War II. Um, this is the source I use for the upcoming Monte Cassino episode. And Matthew has been kind enough to join me today to talk about the experience of writing the book, about his thoughts on Monte Cassino itself, and any other little projects or new books or anything else you've got coming up. So, Matthew, thanks for joining us. Um, let's start right off with uh, just some general information about you yourself. Uh, what, uh, how long have you been writing and, and what kind of got you into writing history? Um, well, I'm actually currently working on my seventh book. Monte Cassino was my second book. And I was unfortunate to leave university. I read actually English literature at Oxford. And I left university in a really bad recession, and it was really hard to get a job. And I always loved books, um, and I always loved history, and ended up um, working for Simon & Schuster Publishers, which is a big American company, of course, who had a, have, have a small office in London. And my first job was in marketing, selling Star Trek novelizations. <laughs> um, and we published sort of five or six Star Trek novels a month, and it was a very easy job because there were so many fans. I don't know if it's like that now. Uh, and then I gradually moved because I, I, I wanted to write, I wanted to be an editor, um, but sort of sales and marketing was where I started. And I sort of worked my way across um, and ended up doing uh, proofreading and copy editing and what we call book doctoring, which is sort of helping out authors who are sort of struggling with material. Um, I did some ghostwriting for some sort of sports stars and pop stars and that kind of thing. So I really um, anybody we would know. Um, I don't know if I should say. I, I don't know how famous <laughs> they are in some uh, the Spice Girls, those sort of people. David Beckham, oh, okay, yeah, Robbie Williams, uh, and then loads of loads of other sort of people who are um, forgotten now for good reason. Um, <laughs> but it was really it was a, it was a way to learn the writing craft, really, from to learn what goes on under the bonnet of a book. Because there's all sorts of things that the writer has to consider that the reader shouldn't even know about. Um, mm. so, so it was a good sort of technical training. Um, and then I, then I had this sort of, I guess, lucky break. I was working as an editor for um, one of the big publishers. And they suddenly needed a TV tie-in book for a series that was going out on the anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And so I sort of, no one was free so it ended up on my desk, and I had to write the whole book in eight weeks, which was the hardest I have ever worked in my life. It was horrendous. <laughs> but the book did well, um, and so that, that sort of started me. I got an agent, um, and then the next book was, was Casino. Wow. So from Sporty Spice to Captain Kirk to Mark Clark, that's, uh, that's quite a roundabout way to get to Monte Casino. It is. It is indeed. Um, and and history, you've always been interested in history, any particular aspect, or was it just kind of, I've noticed uh, in talking to um, history fans for a long time, it seems that there are the uh, the gateway drugs, either it's World War II or Napoleon or, you know, the Battle of the Somme. Uh, was it anything in particular for you, or did you just kind of always gravitate towards history? I think I think a bit of both, really. I'm, my my father, although he wasn't a historian, he was a sort of keen amateur historian. So everywhere we went, we'd be sort of dragged around the museums and the churches and the castles and so on. And um, I guess Second World War. You know, I grew up in Britain in the 1970s. Every 
the Second World War was an obsession. You know, all the yeah. all the games you'd be sort of, you know, Germans be British, and there are all these magazines like Commando magazine. I don't know if you know the sort of you know heroic tales from the Second World War, and it, it was really just part of the it was part of life in Britain in those days, and to a certain extent, it still is. You know, with the sort of um, all the, the endless Battle of Britain and Blitz analogies that are made by you know an endless Churchill stuff, um, and so so I guess I guess the Second World War uh, you know primarily was, was my interest and I read a lot about it, um, and actually I'll, I'll explain how I came to Casino in particular. Um, one of my one of my sort of editing jobs was on a book uh, which you may know called War of Nerves by a guy called Ben Shepherd. Um, it's abs- I thoroughly recommend it to all your listeners. It's a, it's about military psychiatry, um, starting in the, the sort of the first sort of modern industrial war, the American Civil War, going through the First World War, the Second World War, Vietnam, and how each of how how the sort of soldiers on the ground reacted psychologically to the pressures of warfare and how doctors dealt with it. Um, and it's so interesting. But in um, it always has a different name. In the Civil War, it was soldier's heart. Yes, uh, yes, and then in the First World War, it was shell shock because there was a mistaken belief that the the sort of the reverberations of shell had a sort of effect, a, a physiological effect on the brain. And Second World War, it was called battle exhaustion, you know, as if just a nice rest would sort it out. And then, of course, Vietnam was the invention of PTSD, um, which is the sort of you know, and and yeah. Ben Ben is a very unsentimental book that he writes. He's a lovely guy. Unfortunately, he died last year. He was something of a mentor to me, actually. Um, and he's very unsentimental about it. He points out, for instance, that every time one of these diseases is invented, suddenly a lot of the frontline soldiers have got all those symptoms that have been identified so that they can get the hell out. Um, and he talks about the treatment ever. But there was one, one moment in this book that really sort of um, stood out for me, and it was describing Casino. And the young American psychiatrists who'd been working in Africa, where obviously it's a very fast-moving mobile war, um, and they they come to casino and it's static, as you know, everything just stopped and for a long time. So for the first time, they could get right up to the front line. And what they saw there amazed them. Virtually everyone, including people identified as the most sort of uh, effective and vigorous in their units, were suffering from the same symptoms, the shaking, sweating, nightmares that they were treating in their um, wards way behind the front line. Um, and another American psych- uh, psychiatrist also sort of went to the front line. He said, in his experience, um, every single person in a, a rifleman unit, uh, unless they get physically killed or, or wounded, will become psychiatric casualty. So here you have this mass nervous breakdown happening in these mountains in Italy. I just thought, what, what is going on there? So I wanted to find yeah. out. I, that seems, um, I don't blame you. That's pretty, uh, crazy because one of the things that, uh, again, I have noticed in talking to a lot of listeners is, and we have a lot of veterans who listen, um, and they talk about PTSD, but they really don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to, um, dig into it. Um, it's hard for them to kind of find out the history and the origins of this and, and how we came about as a society to start like marking it and knowing, uh, or seeing signs and understanding it as a larger or as a disease, you know, or as a, uh, I don't even know what you'd psychological state on a, on a bigger scale. 
So that's called War of Nerves, the name of the book there. Yeah, Ben Ben Shepherd. Ben Shepherd. Um, so I will post that in the notes for people to check out. Uh, but so what I, I thought kind of grabbed me when I was looking for sources for this battle, your subtitle, The Hardest Fought Battle of World War II. When you when you just kind of uh, first see that, my instinct is to say, that's crazy. What about the Eastern Front? But when you bring it to that point, when you say this mass nervous breakdown, it kind of already starts to tell a little bit of the story. As I was going into this, though, I had very little, you know, I had a cursory understanding of Monte Cassino because nobody really covers it. It doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, And by the time I got out of it, not only do I totally see the mass nervous breakdown that you just referenced, but the hardest fought battle makes, it definitely stakes a claim to that. Um, I think there's a certain amount, possibly there's a certain amount of publishers hyperbole going on there. Um, for which I'm it's a bold about. statement, no, no doubt about it. It's certainly, um, for the Western allies, for the Americans and the British, it was, their, it was the most difficult and largest scale action against the Germans on any front. Um, and interestingly, several of the German people that I interviewed um, described it as worse than Stalingrad. So, so I actually... It's I, I on the same scale as you know, some of those big battles in the in the East. But, um, you know, people who had been at both compared compared them pretty equally, Stalingrad and Monte Cassino. Um, and that that's actually exactly where I want to go with this, because that, that I found uh, surprising... And uh, a little shocking because I had, again, you don't hear very much about Monte Cassino. You hear about the bulge and D-Day and all the, the big, you know, the, the movie battles. Um, but you really do get the, as you read this book, uh, the point you make about how both veterans of World War I and veterans of Stalingrad really drive home the fact that this was essentially uh, a battle that, that could have been fought in between 1914 and 1918, or it could have, it would have fit right in on the Eastern front. Um, and it doesn't seem like, uh, it, it struck me as interesting that the, the German soldiers particularly were kind of logical and, and very much like this, this, I've seen this before and I've seen it on the Eastern front, uh, and Monte Cassino is worse. There's a couple of references in there. I believe there's a direct quote where a guy says that he had been at Stalingrad and this was, this was worse than that. Um, when you were collecting these interviews, just what kind of amount of, uh, you know, what, what's a ballpark timeline that went into them? How much time did you spend collecting them? How much time did you actually get to talk to veterans? Um, do you remember any of that, or was it just kind of a blur as you get the book together? No, no, absolutely. That was, um, I mean, it wasn't, it, it's not the entirety of the book. Obviously, there's a lot of other, there's a lot of um, published sources, um, and yeah. contemporary diaries, letters, um, and newspapers, and so on. But really, the the in- interviews with the veteran was really what gives this book its sort of heart, I guess. Um, it was an incredible experience meeting these these old guys and women. Um, and a lot of them right at the end of their lives. I mean, this is, they were, you know, this is a long time ago. The the interviews happened 20 years ago. A lot of them were in their 80s. And um, the way I went about it was you start with, you you start with the sort of obvious things like veterans associations, 
and um, sort of regimental archives. And you look at the archives, you try and find the people who wrote the contemporary stuff. But what really sort of got me out of the problem with the problem with this sounds very very rude, but the problem with um, dealing with vet veterans is they've often told the story many times before, and it slightly loses its sharp edges. It sort of slightly gets rounded up. Um, and really, my ideal um, interviewee would be someone who maybe kept a diary or maybe wrote something at the time and hasn't really sort of you know spoken about it very much. And it's it sort of brings it, it's much more immediate effect. And, and one of the things that I did is I wrote to something like two hundred local newspapers, um, just a little letter saying, "Has anybody got information about? Was anybody at casino would like to speak to me? I'm writing a new book." Um, and you know, local newspapers don't have a lot of stuff. You know, they're looking for stuff to fill the pages. So they they pretty much all ran it, and I was overwhelmed. I had something like six, seven hundred respondents from really? just just from England. Um, you know, they sent me letters, they sent me photos, diaries, um, and then I did this several big tours around the around Britain, um, meet meeting people, interviewing them, recording the interviews, um, taking photos. Um, and I did the same in the States. Um, I came over to, um, spent quite a lot of time in Connecticut, around sort of New Britain area. Um, and then most of my American interviews were sort of around sort of Minneapolis, Michigan. Um, so I felt, you know, I sort of drove, I felt like I was in the Fargo movie, sort of driving my car through the snow to these uh, often, <laughs> often slightly sort of Scandinavian descended people as well. A lot of 34th yeah, yeah. Division, the 34th Division in particular. Sort of the, the you know came from came from that area, um, and I met met lots of people there, and one of the th one of the um, one of the sort of the sort of happy coincidences were a lot of the Polish people f who fought at Casino, very very few of them went back to Poland at the end of the war. Most of them settled in Britain, so I was able to meet a lot of the Polish veterans quite easily here in the UK, and then I had a researcher working in Germany. I had a researcher working in New Zealand. And several researchers working in France as well, conducting interviews and sort of toing and froing with sort of questions and 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 so on. So, and one of the, one of the great things about that, it was just such a it was such an eye opener, and there were just so many emotions sort of flowing around. I mean, some of the interviewees would sort of clam up, and they wouldn't want to, you know, they wouldn't want to sort of sort of lay themselves on the line, but others. Um, literally had never spoken about it before. And to the extent that sometimes their, their families would sort of creep into the room and sort of sit listening, they were just absolutely fascinated to hear this. And a lot of them, I mean, it sounds a bit sort of maudlin, but a lot of them, this, this was the sort of, they knew this was the, the last time that they would speak about it, the one and only time they would speak about it. And when you hear what they had to say, um, you could completely understand why they didn't speak about it. Uh, and subsequent to the book being published, there were I had a lot of um, contact from um, people whose fathers had fought in the battle, just saying, you know, thank you for the book. Now I know why my dad was like he was, often mm. not in a good way. Um, so, so it was that that thing. I mean, it, the, really, the human side, the human side of the experience. Um, I'm not really, I'm not one of these sort of historians who gets excited about some tiger tanks or you know caliber of guns or or wants to sort of refight the battles and you know that kind of thing what they what they should have done tactically or whatever well, there's an element of that in the book 
it was really the human experience that I wanted to get. And having got that, this is really why I didn't do another Second World War book because that, you know, this was this was what I wanted to say about the war. Mm. And uh, I will say that comes through in you know throughout the entire book. Um, it just it's kind of a it's a harrowing read for the if you have any kind of con- contextual understanding of of World War II. Um, as you read this book, it really, really speaks to the, the personal experience on a level that some historians have a hard time conveying. Uh, I find a lot, I read a lot of, uh, a lot of World War II, a lot of World War I, and it's easy because I think it's less, um, personally damaging, like less emotionally in, in investing to talk about tiger tanks and talk about the ordinance that each side is throwing at each other and, uh, you know, flanking maneuvers. But when you talk about how, um, a, a gentleman is just slid down a, a little rocky outcropping on the Rapido and he looks down and he's, you know, he's relieved himself and he can't stop shaking and trying to just get away. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty, um, it, at times I found myself kind of, you know, needing to step away from it as I was reading the book, just because you want to think about it and ingest it. But also it's a, it is a very personal read for a history book, which is actually uh, rare and, and really nice. Um, I think it's more informative. Well, it's interesting, as I'm, interesting you saying that, um, you know, the Monte Cassino is rather sort of less well known than than um, you know the Ardennes or the crossing of the Rhine or the D-Day or you know for for us in Britain it's it's Battle of Britain, Blitz, Dunkirk, yeah. all that kind of thing. And I think that's because, and this is what another thing that sort of attracted me to the story is it's it's very different to the sort of the sort of black and white heroic sort of narrative that we have for lots of the lot of the Second World War. It's a very for for a start, as you as you said, it's more like the First World War because it's static and it's uh, no one's moving and it's just a, a sort of massive. Uh, I mean, I think one of the one of the New Zealand generals described it as you know lo- lo- looking at the looking at the fighting just said one word Passchendaele, um, yeah. you know, the, the, and this is someone who'd fought at Passchendaele. I said this is just Passchendaele, um, but also it's interesting in in other ways, but particularly for the sort of international nature of the of the armies. You know, you've got something like sixteen different nationalities fighting on side. You've got Poles, you've got um, you've got New Zealanders, you've got F- French North Africans, you've got Germans, Austrians, Czechs, Poles fighting on both sides. Um, you, you've even got like a Brazilian contingent at one point uh, appears, and all of they're all there for different reasons. And and to actually and it, it gives you the the opportunity as a, as a historian to actually look at the background to say the Nepalese Gurkhas, you know, what are they doing there? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's their attitude? And it's completely different to someone who's a Londoner who's been conscripted and completely different to a German who's been in the Hitler youth and has been, you know, in this militaristic society, so different to the, the, the citizen armies of, um, of the United States and Britain. And really sort of getting under the skin of those just ordinary people like you and me, you know, who are not you know they're not natural soldiers in the way that they haven't been brought up um in the way and also you know if you look at the french maybe we'll talk about them later the french north africans are coming from really brutalized and brutal societies um but if you look at the 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 americans and the british they're just like you and me and they react in a sort of layperson way which i find you can really identify with as 
um, a writer or a reader who doesn't have direct experience of of, of combat. Um, so, so there's all sorts of little fascinating, and the, and the, the strategy and the tactics behind that sort of explain this mess, which is what it is. Let's be honest, um, is also is also very interesting and talks a lot about the the relationship between the British and the Americans and the Russians and and and. Britain and its imperial forces. Of course, it's the British Empire. It's not just Britain um, fighting the Second World War. Thank goodness. Um, otherwise, we would have been in big trouble. Um, that's that's a good point. As I was reading, I will say this, and I was thinking about it the other day because of the anniversary that just came around. I really, and this is a jealous thing on my part, but uh, I wish, and it's not World War II, but I would love to see you give the same treatment you gave to Monte Cassino um, to the Korean War, because there's a lot of same, similar aspects mm -hmm. to Monte Cassino, where you've got multinational forces, a lot of just kind of terrible fighting and, and guys that don't really... It's not to what you're saying. It's not the cinematic, uh, clear cut, good guys, bad guys that you would have at D Day or Dunkirk. Um, and it just you you give such a good voice to Joe Blow or uh, George the Gurkha or Mike the Maori or whatever it might be. And you really like I had no idea. A lot of the Maori stuff I was fascinated by, and the Polish stuff is fascinating. And I like I've always known about you know, or I've known for a while about how poorly the polls ended up getting shafted in this whole um, thing. But by the end of this, I was like, man, they really, they really got screwed over by yeah. everybody, everybody, the poor polls. Um, yeah. But Montesino is a big, it's a big thing. Even today in Poland, it's a, I, I hadn't really realized this. And when the book came out, Suddenly, I had a, a Polish publisher who was printing a hundred thousand copies and flying in to the Warsaw book fair and, had all these these you know venues set up with hundreds of people and this is like my second book and I'm going what um, <laughs> and and if, and if you go you go to casino um, and you know you look at the as I did you look at the the graveyards uh, the Polish one is really quite something really grandiose and triumphant and you know very you know massive um, and I was sitting there once just sort of making some notes or something and uh, suddenly all these coaches turn up. And these poles pour out, and there's you know, loads of them, and they go and they're singing patriotic songs, and there's priests doing services, and you know it's it, it's a something that really gave Poland back some some pride, I guess. You know the the fact mm. that they were the ones into the monastery, and the fact that you know they were an important part of a part of the of the, the British forces at that time, and of course the stories that they had from how they got there. Um, I cover a little bit of, of this in the book because, of course, um, Poland, as you said, shafted is the word, as they have been in history, sitting there on the North German plain is not a good place. You know, and there's the no. tradition of Poland in the 18th century, and then Poland just sort of gets its nationhood back at the end of the First World War, fights off the Russians. Um, and then, of course, with the, with the um, you know, the Stalin-Hitler pact, they, they, get, they get partitioned again. And then, of course, the Russians take something like 1.5 million Poles out and to the Gulag. Um, mm -hmm. And I tell one of the stories of a guy who's, I think, 14 in 1939, ends up fighting at casino. Um, but there was another, another um, actually, old lady that I interviewed that I, 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 the interview didn't make it into the book because I'd kind of gone with the other guy. But the story of the, of the sort of four weeks sitting in a, in a train, sort of rumbling east and freezing cold, babies dying, 
and then ending up in basically prison camps or you know attached to mines or forestry or whatever and the i mean the Solzhenitsyn material really and then they you know these poor starving people get taken out through through um Iran by the British and sort of put back together and then they end up um you know fighting for the glory of Poland in in Mont you know casino in a, you know what was really a pyrrhic victory um and losing a lot of men and fighting with just such hate for the for the Germans which really no one else had i mean the french the french um this is another really interesting thing about the citizen armies they the you know the british didn't really hate the germans there were a few there was one a, a, a guy called major beckett who was in charge of a battalion the essex that i cover a lot in the book told me that there was one guy in his in his unit who had lost his whole family in the bombing of coventry you know this awful um, destruction yeah. of coventry uh, and he would he would just you know he just all he wanted to do was kill germans and he would sort of put notches on his guns but most people didn't i think they there was a survey done of american units and only one in 10 i think actually really wanted hated germans and wanted to kill them the others didn't you know J japanese it was different because japan japan had attacked and of course it's a racial thing um so they actually had to set up in america they had to set up these hate camps to teach the gi's to hate enough to be able to to be able to kill but even so you know in any unit there'd be there'd be strivers and skivers there'd be a couple of strivers and there'd be you know a couple of skivers who did, didn't do anything and the, the rest in the middle really just sort of went how the wind blowed but people were after an action that you know the officers would look and they'd see that only you know 10% of people had actually fired their weapons the rest had just you know kept down um, but the poles were different the poles where they were full of hate full of hate for the germans for obvious reasons mm. so you touched on something and and i was wondering about this as i was reading it um so as you're playing writer uh historian psychologist in these interview rooms i was wondering how you go about picking um you know picking which ones which interviews are going to make it in the book are there any that you just couldn't shoehorn in that you found really compelling, um, but for whatever reason, it just didn't fit the narrative, it didn't fit the, um, you know, for whatever reason, were there any interviews that didn't quite make it out? Because like you were saying earlier, a lot of these guys, or uh, men and women, were, you know, touching 80, 90 years old when you're reading or, you know, you're taking down your notes. This is their last, you know, shot maybe to get their story out there. And as they're kind of uh, telling you their story, sometimes I'm assuming if you've got hundreds of interviews that you're putting down, some of them just can't make it in. Uh, how did you go about narrowing it down? How did you, what's the process on that? Well, it, and does it kind of affect you in any way? Um, it's a sort of, there's, there's various different factors, I guess. Like I said before, um, you, you, you want something that doesn't feel like a, a, a story that's been told too many times. One that, as I said, lost lost the, the sort of rough edges and become uh, slightly not anodyne, but um, and there's basic things about how articulate people are, uh, and that sounds that sounds awful because it sounds terribly snobby. But some people are more articulate than others, and some people aged ninety or whatever aren't. You know, they 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 might be beginning to lose. You know, the the sort of articulate side of if they had it before, and some people just don't have it. Um, and there was a sort of practical considerations as well. When I was looking, you know, I wanted to sort of tell the key moments of the battle. And I wanted eyes on the ground 
for those key moments, whether it's the when they finally get a bridge across the Liri or, the, or they cross the Garigliano or the um, you know the first people into the monastery. Um, so you know, I don't. I, I, you always want to sort of show, not tell. So I want to tell you know show um, an actual real person going through this um, engagement rather than say you know this company walked up the you know marched this way or whatever so it was really sort of finding people who were at key moments in the battle that that was a big consideration um and also people sort of surprising people people who surprised me you know um who came out with something sort of that that, that i thought might in you know might be something a bit different from for my readers as well um whether it's um you know, someone told me that, um, you know, for instance, that a particular battle was the most exhilarating and exciting thing in his entire life. And I thought, you know, and that he, he sort of missed it. You know, he missed that excitement. Um, and also I, I was very interested to, um, to ask people about what, they, what happened next, really. So, you know, there was a couple of people who'd lost a leg during the fighting. And so, I'd, you know, I'd be interested to see how that affected their lives, you know, or people who had clearly suffered, um, you know, psychological damage and how that affected them. Um, and one of the, it was, it was, that was so fascinating. There was a lot of people who said, you know, they really struggled to, to sort of get back into civilian life. They drank too much. They, um, some of them just ended up rejoining the army because they felt lost without it. Um, and there was one particularly interesting guy who was who I saw up in up in Min, uh, sort of north of Minneapolis, um, and he was an artillery spotter, which is an absolute key role, of course, in at this you know at, the, at this battle. Um, and he'd he'd gone back and he'd he'd sort of had a successful life. He'd had a family, and then one day, quite recently, before I spoke to him, he'd been driving past a graveyard, and he suddenly had this overwhelming memory of holding. A friend in his arms who'd had his arm blown off, who was bleeding out, and and him dying in his arms, and he'd forgotten this. He'd he'd just forgotten it, um, and he, you know, his his family ended up sort of intervening. They said, "Look, you're drinking too much," and they'd been marking the bottles and they'd been seeing that he'd been drinking too much, um, and he went to see someone, and he was um, diagnosed with delayed onset PTSD, which I thought was really interesting. Some. And, you know, the, the, the literature says sometimes, you know, when you're reaching the end of your life and, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of changed psychologically and maybe you're um, physically not as strong as you were. And often this is when this PTSD can suddenly strike you down. Um, and he joined, a, he joined a group therapy thing with lots of other sort of very old guys, most of who had been bomber crew. Um, and, uh, and he said, and it was the time I interviewed him, it was the Iraq war. And he said, I just, you know, watching this on the telly, you know, I said to my therapist, this is really doing my head in. And the therapist said, yeah, watch the Disney Channel instead. Um, so <laughs> that was the diagnosis. But I find that, I found that fascinating, how at the end of your life it can, and I, I, I kind of saw this happening in front of me interviewing some of these guys. I could see them, you know, really reliving some of the experiences, perhaps, you know, that had been, put in a box you know i think that's most people just put it in a box and shut the box um and uh you know opening that box at the end of their lives i thought was i, I found really interesting especially considering that generation the the kind of um it wasn't obviously wasn't as 
common for them to leave and find a good therapist and keep a, you know, find a psychiatrist and go there. I, I know for the United States, I don't know about Britain, but it was fairly frowned upon. You're supposed to just come back and do your thing. Yeah, you stiff up get a back to work. We call it stiff up a little. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah, the classic British. Yeah. Um, so. I guess what I'd like to just kind of do now is pick your brain a little bit about the battle itself. Um, and uh, again, I don't want to, I, I appreciate you giving me this time and I don't want to keep you here all Sunday morning. Um, but I, I just would like to get an idea of where you stand, stand now, as far as Monte Cassino and your mindset, where does that battle stand in terms of, of world war two for you? Is it, uh, is it one of the, important or decisive battles like i um as you're reading this and and other sources it's made clear that one of the intentions behind this was to draw away forces from normandy it does that um but the process of doing that seems i don't know i i i don't know where i stand on it because i i read this book and i feel like it was a waste of life and um well, Maybe. You, have to, you have to sort of track it back and see why are they you have to answer the question why are they there why are they in this mm-hmm. position and it sort of goes back to way back to sort of um you know early 42 when the the you know they're, they're trying to decide what to do um and certainly the um there was great pressure on roosevelt to, to get american soldiers fighting somewhere um you know against in order to the russians are facing you know 147 190 whatever it is divisions in on the eastern front um and marshall and the the american sort of top brass you know they were very traditional they wanted to you know concentrate their force against you know the key enemy point berlin um but um in 42 there weren't enough landing craft there weren't enough trained american soldiers actually over in the theater so they decided to delay any any normandy landings till 43 Uh, And to give the Americans something to do, you have obviously Operation Torch in November 42. You have um, significant forces, American, landing in in North Africa. And and then they clear out out North Africa eventually. Obviously, you probably know the campaign. There's a few setbacks. Um, Kasserine Pass and so on, and um, but they they you know and then you get to July you get to the Casablanca Conference July forty three and there's this massive sort of head to head argument between the British on one side and the Americans on the other, and the Americans are pushing for a cross channel invasion as quickly as possible, and the British are intent on delaying that um, because they don't consider success to be in any way uh, assured, and of course you know there's a lot of uh, the British had a lot, a lot longer and more painful experience on the Western Front in the First World War, and it's uh, you know the, the, it haunted the, the policymakers from Churchill downwards. Um, so they so they want to they want also they want to keep fighting. So they decide um, we're, we're going to invade Sicily. We'll take pressure off. This is the time of the, the huge Kursk battle in the east, um, and that's that, and let's hope you know we'll maybe knock Italy out of the war. Um, now this happens. This happens, as you know, um, after the invasion of Sicily, Mussolini falls. Um, the Amer- uh, the Italians leave leave the uh, the German side, um, and so what do we do now? And um, again, the Americans are saying that this is a distraction. We're only here in the Mediterranean for imperial reasons because you want your Gibraltar Suez route to India secured. Um, but again, there's a sort of messy compromise and they invade italy from the south 
which is big mistake number one, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, as Napoleon said, Italy is a boot, you rent it from the north. You know, Hannibal went all the way through the Alps, yeah. all the way through <laughs> fighting up, because it's the most perfect defensive terrain. You've got fast-flowing rivers, you've got high mountains, um, and so it's just the worst place to be attacking the German armies, anywhere in Europe, probably. Um, so, so, And the Americans know this, and they're not really 100% committed to this theatre. Um, and there's mistrust at every level between the British and the Americans, um, commanders all the way down to, to sort of battalion level. Um, the, the, the British are much keener than the Americans on preserving life. They don't take the risks. Um, the British on, the, on their side consider the American troops to be you know, badly trained, inexperienced, um, and pretty ineffective. Um, so, so, so you've got this sort of messy strategic and tactical compromise. But anyways, they invade Italy, and, they, and Italy's already out of the war. They secure the port of the Naples, which is the, the objective of invading Italy, to get the port of Naples and to get the Foggia airfields from where, you, you know, the, for instance, the oil, in, the oil refineries in Romania can be attacked, and, you know, Germany can be attacked, avoiding this awful sort of defences that were the, the RAF and the USAF were, were, were facing, um, um, attacking from Britain. Um, and that's all achieved. And but then what do you do? And it's a terrible winter, the worst winter in living memory. And you've got these armies. All they can do is go on attacking, go on attacking, because otherwise, the the, the political ramifications of not doing that, as far as the Russians are concerned, uh, are not supportable. In order to keep the Russian alliance going, the the Americans and the British have to be seen to be making an effort. Uh, against the Germans. And this is their only active front against the Germans. Um, so it's really for political reasons rather than sort of, you know, sensible military reasons that, that these armies, allied armies, get sucked into this sort of casino trap. And casino itself, of course, and this Gustav line defense, it's the finest defensive position in Europe. It's been studied, you know, at military academies as exactly that. Um, and this is what this is what the Germans have lured them into attacking, and that's what caused um, the, these terrible months of, of sort of stalemate, really, in Italy. It's interesting that you listening to you talk about it like that um, brings to mind Eisenhower's term military necessity and i don't know if it's his term but when talking about old buildings and and historic structures and um historically significant places and whether or not they need to be destroyed uh and the discussion is will one allied life be saved if we destroy this structure whatever it might be he uses the term military necessity to explain away or to give uh, to give reason behind destroying these structures, and it sounds like the entire Italian campaign, uh, if you were to sum it up, it's really just military necessity in terms of it just has to be done in order to keep the Russians satisfied, in order to get the Americans training, in order to keep the pressure on the Germans, in order to give uh, a little bit more flexibility strategically, but outside of that it was the war was never going to be won by fighting in the uh the the Leary valley um or at least that's what i took away from it there's no dis- decisive victory that could come from uh monte cassino yeah I, I think that's that's certainly true but i think that the um i mean maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later but the the sort of the aftermath of what happened 
after the Gustav line was finally broken, um, could have been much more decisive than it turned out to be. Um, uh, actually, that touches on something. So, Mar so JFC Fuller is very um, critical of the way that the battle was directed, and you've we've already talked about Hannibal and uh, Napoleon, two of the greatest you know generals of all time. Mark Clark certainly doesn't fall into that category of great commanders, but is this entire is the uh, the failure, because as I'm reading your, your book here, Monte Cassino, uh, the hardest fought battle of world war two, I kept getting reminded, and this sounds a little, um, probably not, a, not appropriate, but it reminds me of if you're, if you are, do you cook often? Yeah. You cook, yeah. Are you, okay. Yeah. So one of the biggest mistakes you can make in the kitchen, or at least for me is when you're having a dinner party and you're, entree finishes before all the sides or the sides are all done. And then they're sitting there getting cold and the entree is not done. Casino was one of, it was a poorly cooked meal in terms of every time something good happened that the ancillary aspects weren't ready to go. So like the, the bombing of the, the, uh, the um, monastery, nobody's ready to follow that up battle after battle. It seems like they made a, small advance or they were ready to go. And then there was no follow-up or the other parts of the meal weren't done or hadn't been even started. Uh, and so until that final battle, until that fourth battle, um, it just never really, the timing was terrible. And it reminded me a lot of like civil war battles where you have generals just incapable of following up victory. Um, and I don't know, what was your, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth in what you say. And I think that if, if you actually look, sort of from from the beginning from the first the first sort of time they tried to take on this Gustav line and the monastery defensive position back in January um and they've got a masterstroke they got a, they're going to land an amphibious force behind the Gustav line um and 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 break it that way so they're going to attack and then at Anzio they're going to have this this um what uh, what I think Churchill called it hurling a wild cat on the shore um, and that's going to that's going to cause complete chaos, and that's going to cause the Gustav line to be to be become obsolete, to become redundant. But instead of a, hurling a wildcat, as Churchill said, it's a it's a beached whale. Uh, and, and the American general there, warned by Clark not to do anything too risky, he he secures the beaches and then doesn't break out into in, in out of this sort of pocket. Um, and although some of the, um, the, you know, the idea was they attack at Casino, they draw the reserves in, uh, therefore freeing up Anzio. And that did, that did happen. That did happen to a certain extent. A couple of divisions were moved to Casino from the Anzio area. Um, but then Anzio, they just sat there. Um, and I think they just unloaded and unloaded into this small pocket. And there was another, there's a, so Churchill does give good quotes. I've got to give you an um, and he's the best in the business at yeah. quotes. And uh, and I think there were something like eighteen thousand. There were sort of three hundred tanks and eighteen thousand vehicles unloaded at Anzio. And Churchill said, "Well, how many men have we got looking after these vehicles? You know, have we got a great superiority in chauffeurs?" Um, and so, and, and this causes us, the, the first battle. You got the you obviously got the famous the thirty sixth Texas Division attack attacking at night across a minefield, green troops, and it's a it was described in the U.S. press as the biggest disaster since Pearl Harbor. It was a total, total failure for which Clark, I think, was faced a congressional investigation after the war. Yeah. And you have 
the, the American 34th Division, they get lucky and there's heavy fog and they get up the mountain, sort of up to the side of the monastery. But there they can't dig in. It's hard rock. Um, they're in, incredibly exposed. They're very difficult to keep supplied. You know, and mules become complete gold dust trying to keep these, these men supplied. Um, and the Germans, of course, have every feel, every sort of route of attack, you know, set up with machine guns on fixed lines, with wire, with mines, um, and, you know, lots of sort of caves. I mean, they really had plenty of time to prepare the casino position. Um, and they did a supremely brilliant job uh, on, on that. Um, and then you have the French attacking and they, they actually break the line to, to, to the east. Um, but, you know, they're not really trusted. It's another of these multinational problems. They're not really trusted, so they're not reinforced. And then you've got this an- this army sitting at Anzio, who is now looking very vulnerable because the Germans can bring forces in to counterattack. So in order to um, protect Anzio, they have to keep attacking at Casino to keep the Germans occupied on the Gustav line. So the, the Anzio tail is wagging now wagging the Casino dog. Um, so it's that, that's the kind of, you know, your, yeah. your meal analogy works really well. You've sort of, you know, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, you can probably work it out better than I can, but that's, it's a mess. And your dinner party guests are, you know, not going to be happy at all. Um, and this goes on and on, and they have to keep attacking, even though the weather means they, they, they've got massive superiority in aircraft, in tanks, but they're completely redundant. You, you can't use them in, in this terrible winter weather. Um, the Germans have flooded the whole of the area in front of the monastery, so you, tanks just get bogged down. So it's it's all they can do is hand to hand fighting. Um, and for that, uh, and and what again, what I came away from reading this was the the person who would be most impressed by the Gustav line is probably Eric Ludendorff because it seems like they took his uh, World War One thinking and perfected it on this line where you have fields of fire pre uh, pre sighted artillery. You have all the booby traps and S mines and, uh, and horrible little surprises for American or, you know, allied troops. And then you also have the constant uh, uh, counterattacking where they're defense in depth. So you've got lines, lines to, to, yeah. And that was, you know, there was a position um, you probably remember from the book, point five five nine three, I think it's called, on at the end of Snake's Head Ridge, which yeah. overlooked the monastery. And this, the fighting for that was absolutely brutal, and it changed hands again and again and again. Um, but the but the Allies weren't able to secure it until right at the end. Well, so it tells you a lot. First off, if you're listening to this, then uh, I think it. it tells you a lot about the battle Monte Cassino and the book Monte Cassino, the hardest fought battle of world war two that, uh, Matthew and I are 45 minutes into this conversation and we have not touched on the monastery, maybe the most, uh, you know, the most famous aspect of this battle. Um, we haven't really touched on. So before I, uh, and again, I, I want to make this, um, I don't want to steal your whole day. So, but one of the things that I'd, I'd, I think you might find interesting is, so we put this out there to, we've got about 6,000 plus people on Instagram and a lot of them are, the vast majority are, are very um, interested in avid amateur military historians. Uh, they're fairly familiar with a lot of what we post about. And I put it out to them uh, just asking two questions. The first one is, uh, is one life worth the destruction of a village? Because what, uh, as I finish this, the casino village 
um, that the the color images of that are like lunar. It almost looks like you could intersperse those with pictures of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and it looks the same. It's just a broken, rubble-filled little um, village there. And so the answer it was actually a, quite a substantial town. Um, before you wouldn't know it. I think village is, village is probably the wrong word, but it's quite quite a substantial town. And if you go there now, you won't find a single building that predates the war, not a single one. Um, and um, also, I mean, I did a. I, I mentioned earlier before we went on on to record that I went there for an anniversary quite recently and did a talk, and I was really struck by the amount of people in wheelchairs who were there, young people in wheelchairs. I mean, you know, you obviously expect a few, but there were lots. And I sort of asked someone about this, and he says, well, it's because um, there's still so much loaded oh. ordnance around the place. And these kids, they go up, you, you can go, you know, go a little bit out of casino, and you can climb up to Monte Lungo, and you can still see the foxhole, the German foxholes, you know, and the, the kids are poking around in them, boom, they're, they're, you know, they've lost a leg. Um, you know, it's still, it's still... It's a haunting place, to casino. It's a sort of modern, bustling Italian town, but all around it are these massive graveyards. Um, and of course, the, the the monastery itself is uh, again. You kind of need to to actually go to casino to appreciate just how it dominates that whole that whole valley. And it's you know you, you see photographs. There's some fantastic Margaret um, Bork White was there as long as as well as lots of other um, distinguished Americans. Ernie Pyle, Bill Maudlin, um, Martha Gellhorn. Um, but, you know, and you look at her, look at the, the photos, but it doesn't, re- unless you're actually there and you look up and it's, you have to sort of really crane your neck upwards to actually see this thing. And, you know, you just think the idea of climbing up there, you know, in daylight w- with full climbing kit would be quite daunting. But then you've got these young guys who, in, who were doing it in the dark, you know, in filthy weather, um, under fire, and you just think, this is madness. And you can understand then why those soldiers looking up at that monastery looming over them, they cheered and cheered and cheered when it was destroyed mm. by those those flying fortresses in February. It's uh, I, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, but a lot of the listeners definitely are. Oh, yeah, um, indeed. And it it's very as I was reading the description, you had uh, you had some great quotes about guys talking about how it's that monastery was like an eye watching them all the time hovering there. And I just imagine, you know, Sauron's eye and, and it, it, I think a lot of people would cheer if that thing got blown up as well. Yeah. Uh, if you're constantly under its, uh, it's, you know, vision there. So the question we asked was, would, uh, would you have bombed Monte Cassino Monte, uh, monastery? And um, we had 1200 people respond and it's a pretty, f- Pretty straight up, uh, no. We've got 59% say no, 41% say yes. Obviously, it's not a perfect, um, you know, uh, kind of quiz, but it tells you a lot. And then the response is uh, one life worth the destruction of a village or town, whatever it might be. And we've got a 60% no, 40% yes. So um, if a lot of the – now, I obviously would – argue that if you put these uh people saying no in charge for even a day um and had to, to see what they would have mm. seen at month you know i bet you that that no changes fairly uh, well I think, fairly quick i think hindsight i think hindsight is a wonderful thing because mm. uh, in fact it was a 
it, it, it was a mistake to, to bomb the monastery. Um, if you're putting aside sort of, you know, the huge cultural and artistic importance of the of the building and the, the frescoes and everything like that, which were which were obviously destroyed. Um, and but the, the, the fact is that, that it's very unlikely that any Germans were in the monastery, but they didn't need to be because they had perfectly good artillery spotting positions. So just ar around the, the outside of it. Um, and in fact, the people there were a lot of refugees in the monastery, and they were you know, Italian refugees. I think we we haven't really mentioned the Italians yet. I hope we will. Um, and but it actually, in its sort of state of destruction, it made a better defensive position. So the minute it was bombed, all these these um, you know the German mainly the paratroopers went who had who were you know, this incredibly formidable unit on the German side. Um, they occupied the ruins and they defended them until. They were outflanked much, much later. You know, the monastery was never was pretty impregnable position, um, and it was well supplied with from sort of underground caves and so on. Um, and you talked about the, the village or the town of, of Casino, and this I think is slightly different because it, it was pretty much you know there weren't really any civilians still in the town when it was carpet bombed. Um, and there's there's other sort of things going on that you need to look at when you when you look at this this sort of tactical bombing. And there's a lot of sort of inter, like in any armed forces, there's a lot of sort of inter-service rivalry. And the Air Force, they were determined to sort of, you know, have a big impact. Um, mm -hmm. And what started as a sort of, you know, a sort of quite a precision tactical bombing became just this massive carpet bombing. Um, and what, what and inevitably what happened is a lot of the bombs actually, there was a, a village called Valvery, which was thronged with Italian refugees from Casino, which was hit really badly by by the by the um, American bombers. Um, and I think an Amer American sort of complained to me that more of his unit were killed by the American Air Force than they were by the Luftwaffe because it's a blunt, are... it's a blunt blunt instrument. But the, you know the, the head of the, of the of the Air Force wanted to you know he wanted to show off the power at his disposal. Um, I I think at this point in the war too, any time that the uh, Air Force is showing off its strength. I always work under the impression that it is somehow, some ways, trying to send a message to the Soviets, um, okay. constantly reminding them we have the ability to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it just it seems like every time that the Air Force or the Eighth Air Force gets involved in something, it uh, it just ratchets it up to eleven in terms of yeah. how much can they put in the air, how many planes, how many bombs, and even if it doesn't need to happen, let's just see what we can do because we're figuring it out here as well. And we want to also show off, you know, flex a muscle every now and then yeah. to remind people what, uh, and of course, like, what like the, um, the outcome of the monastery bombing, the outcome of the bombing of the town of casino, which as you said, was completely flattened. Um, but it didn't actually wipe out all of the defenders who, 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 you know, the survivors reemerged and they fought off this, you know, crack New Zealand, um, troops coming in. And of course, all of their routes were blocked with rubble and, and stuff everywhere, so they couldn't get any vehicles in. They only had narrow paths that they could use to attack, which were easily defended. So again, it was a it, it was a counterproductive move. It would have been easy to take the city had it not been destroyed. The town. It uh, it, it comes through in the in the book is uh, especially that with the monastery. As soon as it was destroyed, it's like a German defensive uh, you know playground. At that point, you can hide. You, you know, you can put mines and booby traps and, and, you know, uh, basically just the, the, 
destruction of it makes it a more impressive fortification for the Germans or a more uh, easily defended fortification. Uh, we, you, you briefly talked about the uh, refugees. I find I am shocked that there is not a miniseries or a movie about the monks and the abbot. Uh, it's just such an interesting, it's almost so, it's like, a, it's a cinematic story in and of itself. Um, the poor guy getting picked up by the Gestapo, uh, you know, just the fact that you have a, a Nazi Catholic who yeah. is holding to his word and they're not using the, the monastery. And he seems like a somewhat decent person uh, as far as Nazis go. And that always plays well on camera. People love that. And then you've got this abbot who's, you know, as old as the monastery himself, he seems like, you know, the first Benedictine monk. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, he seems like a, just a, a reservoir of strength. And then you've got a hundred or I think it was a little over a hundred refugees that are hiding in the cavernous basement of this monastery. And unfortunately they suffer the worst when the bombing or as far as on the, in the monastery, they suffer terribly. Uh, one of the things that I had no idea about in reading your book brought it home to me is, or I just never really thought about it, but the Italians are a lot like the Poles in that they just, the Italian people got screwed because uh, they're the enemy of everybody. Um, and both sides, the allies and the access just kind of treat them, um, I don't know, but but reading the book, the the thing that I took away from it is that the the vast majority of the experiences that the the veterans, the Allied veterans, talk about is is how sweet and kind that the peasants were, even though they had nothing. Um, that I thought I thought was very telling. Uh, I don't know. I I thought Tony Patasio's story was particular. Yeah, yeah, no, he was a, he was a real find, and I, I was really, you know. I, I, I hope it's bringing something a bit different to the book, actually talking to civilians who, who were there um, at the Absolutely. time. Um, and, you know, it's interesting there, for instance, the, you know, you ask them about the monastery and they say, how dare, how dare the, the allies blow up mm. the monastery. They were absolutely, absolutely unforgivable. Um, and, but also you're right that they, um, because one of the things that happened when with the fall of Mussolini is that they opened all the POW camps in Northern Italy and they, and the, and the British and the British actually mainly from, from Africa, they streamed southwards. Um, and the Germans were sort of obviously trying to round them up and get them back under lock and key. But the, you know, they were at great risk to themselves helped by, you know, peasants to cross the mountain. They were given food. And there's a lovely story of a Gurkha who comes into who who escapes from it. Oh, out. Just, um, yeah, that, yeah. You know, and you know the the, the sort of the, the sort of culture, the cut clash of that, and Italian peasants and a Gurkha, you know, sort of looking, you know, looking out for each other is absolutely absolutely fascinating. Um, and a movie like that should be a yeah. movie. <laughs> but there's a, but there's a sort of darker side to it as well, which is one thing that talking to locals who, particularly people who had been young women at the time of the battle. Um, you know, there's a very dark story about how the North, the French North African soldiers yeah. behaved towards the civilians, um, you know, with uh, a lot of sort of mass rapes effectively going on um, to the extent that the, um, you know, the, the, the Italian civilians in many cases had to be actually sort of locked up behind barbed wire in order to protect them from these, you know, very semi-literate, brutal and therefore very effective soldiers. They were probably the most effective soldiers on either side, the Goumiers, the mountain Tunisian and Moroccan mountain troops. Um, but they, uh, you know, the, but they considered rape to be part of 
what some of them consider rape to be part of the you know the deal of of you know fighting for fighting for the French, um, um, and that that was that, that, that's still a very you know there's still a lot of feeling in, around Casino about about that happening. So and and just to to be clear. Th- that was, I, I believe you have a quote in there uh, that is you stepping in while you're talking about that. And I believe you say, uh, as, f- f- as far as your research and interviews could go, you there was no ability to corroborate that. I, um, I don't remember the exact quote, but basically that the, the idea of being, was it Moroccan? The Italian people started saying that they were, that you, if you had experienced anything like that, you'd been Moroccan. Um, you have, to, you have to be really careful about this sort of thing because yeah. um you know there's a lot of sort of racism going on here yeah and i mean there's a fa- you know there's that famous debate uh, after the end of the first world war when um you you probably when senegalese west african um french troops were stationed in germany um and apparently there was a sort of you know there was a huge uh, sort of you know lots of rapes of by them of german women um and several people actually sort of said, "Well, are you sure, or is it, are you just playing to the the racist assumption that a black man is is sort of horrendously out of control, you know, sex crazed, yeah, you know, which is a sort of you know racist trope that is that is, um, and actually sort of uh, Walter McKay, a very fam- a famous West Indian, and this is something I've been working on recently, so it's sort of fresh in my mind, you know, takes takes this on and says, well, actually, where's the proof? And you know, then you look and it's." You know, there may be some instances, but it's not the sort of, you know, mass sort of, you know, phenomenon that is bit, uh, some people in the press are suggesting. Um, and so I, I'm slightly suspicious of, um, you, you know, sort of hearsay. But I did meet people who knew people who had definitely been raped. Um, and you look at the French archives and, there's, you know, unsurprisingly, there's not a lot of detail about, you know, disciplinary measures and so on. But I think they weren't effective if they were taken at all the disciplinary measures against this sort of thing happening um but as i said you've got to be you've got to be very careful when you're dealing with this sort of material well it seems it's uh, i i always whenever we touch on this kind of stuff uh because people get so heated about it and so um focused in on it that it it's always you know it's always important to remind everyone that rape maltreatment murder looting that is all that's just part of the story for everybody every combatant in every war on every side of all time has participated in or not every combatant has participated but everybody has done this uh and it's not unique to a certain group or a certain type of person Um, i mean one of the things i do in the book is i look at the really again to try and understand what it was like to be an italian you know in this i look at what happened to naples the terrible suffering mm-hmm. that was going on there with starvation and typhus and something like uh you know a third of the female nubile population involved in prostitution because there was no other way to survive um and on a, on a lighter note i don't know if you want to keep this in but there's a there's a, a funny story i can't remember whether it's in the book or not but there was a comedian called tommy trinder who sort of a- entertained the troops behind the lines uh, and he he told a story of arriving in in naples harbor um, and he, he'd been told to, um, he was about to go and do a show for, you know, people on R&R, uh, and he was told to contact the harbour master who had a car waiting for him to go to his venue. 
So he get he get he gets off his boat, and there's loads of the sort of there's loads of pimps around, you know, people coming off. Uh, one one said, "I will take you to a pretty girl," and so Tommy sort of walked on. And still pursuing him, the touts goes, oh, pretty girl, pretty girl. And eventually, Tommy Trinder, the comedian, stops and says, I don't want a pretty girl. I want the harbour master. The Italian looked to heaven. His expression indicated his amazement at the peculiar taste of the Inglesis. The harbour master, he repeated. It is difficult, but I try. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely didn't make it in. No, it okay. I would remember that. That's hilarious. <laughs> Um, so yeah anyway um, aside yeah. you know there was you know and and uh, talking to veterans as well and reading veterans accounts you've got people who at home would have never countenanced going to a prostitute no just pretty much they all did and you know and some of their accounts it's they're so dispiriting you know they sort of don't take their boots off and it's the whole thing mm -hmm. just demeaning and degrading and it's that's war. That's for everybody war involved. You know? um, and it's the same with the drinking. You know, there was people would would sort of drowning face down in a puddle because they just drunk too much. You know, and I think that the context. This is particularly bad for casino because of this. I mean, it's something we haven't really sort of covered. We've sort of explained, but the the morale was in the was rock bottom. You know, by a couple of examples, there was something like by December, even before the main battle starts, they'd fought this dreadful fight up from. From Salerno to Casino, um, there's something like twenty thousand British troops deserted, uh, had deserted, um, to the extent that they couldn't. Eat, they ran out of places to lock them up. And General Alexander, the supreme Allied commander, asked Churchill to reimpose the death penalty for desertion in the British army. I saw that. that was crazy. I remember reading that. And, and the and the the Americans, they'd had by December, they had something like forty thousand battle casualties. They had fifty thousand people off sick. You know, this is this is uh, this is not an army that is a, a, in a good place. Well, it it kind of brings us a little bit full circle because um, you had mentioned at the very beginning the idea of this mass nervous breakdown being had by um, by anybody that spent any amount of time uh, in the battle um, at Monte Cassino or, or engaged with the Gustav line and. And I guess what I, I kind of want to wrap up with is as far as Monte Cassino goes in the scheme of, of experiences, is there a particular moment of the battle that you would like not, you know, I don't want to make it sound like uh, in a creepy way or in a disrespectful way, but is there one moment that you wish you would have been able to witness Outside of the bombing of of the monastery, but I think, yeah, there's there's one thing that is almost a sort of surreal moment, um, and it's during the uh, the third the third battle, uh, and you've got the fourth Indian division, which contains the division always contains a sort of uh, British battalions as well, uh, and there was this group called the uh, battalion of the Essex um, riflemen. Uh, and they and if you you can see the photos and, and there's actually there's some good maps on my website actually for of all of this which your listeners might want cool. to actually have a look at when we while we while we're listening to to us talking about it um and there was this sort of old medieval castle which was a sort of halfway up the, towards the monastery and mm. the essex men managed to capture it from the germans and then it's like a medieval siege uh, and instead of sort of pikes, they, they, you know, there's grenades and mortars. 
and you know they they're manning the battlements of this castle you know against you know counterattacks and counterattacks and that just sounds so weird and then and this happens surprisingly often during the battle a truce is called you know, flags of truce go up um, the firing stops out come the medics they collect the dead they even have conversations with the germans who are fighting them um, there was one american guy who was on a truce found someone um, who who knew someone in brooklyn because a german you know had his brother had moved to brooklyn and this guy was from Brooklyn, so they talk about Brooklyn. And then they collect the thing, the truce ends, they salute each other, and then the fighting begins again. That would have been quite something to see, I think. Just it's funny you mention that because, uh, so first off, I actually, in the episode I'm writing for the main podcast, I actually quote you directly when you talk about that, um, that exact image of a, a medieval siege where the spears are replaced by mortars and the, you know, the, boiling pitch is replaced by grenades that stuck with me because it is such a, a bizarre image. But, uh, I also do a short historical fiction episode to go along with each battle. Mm -hmm. And I let the people on Instagram decide which part of the battle they'd want to see and, or which one to do. And that's what got it is we'll be doing a, I'm going to be writing a little short historical fiction about the the siege at uh, the casino castle and just how bizarre that whole thing, that night must have been so strange. Uh, the, guy, the guy who was in charge of the Essex, the guy called Major Dennis Bennett. Um, and actually, I, I met him. I went to his house. He, he was rather, rather sort of well-to-do, a really sort of old-school British Army guy. Um, and you could just <laughs> see him in that in that situation, you know, the sort of the honour among enemies and this. Yeah, riding crop under the arm. Very, very much so. <laughs> Moustache, you know. Love it. Um, well, so that's that's fantastic. Again, I, I really want to thank you for joining, uh, for giving me your time. Well, thank you, you for way me. more. Thank you. Uh, what do you? Uh, what kind of projects are you working on right now? You alluded to something that you're working on. Yeah, I've, um, I've, done, I've sort of, as I said, you know, I kind of had my say on on war after after casino. I didn't. Yeah. Um, subsequent to that, I wrote a book about the building of the Panama Canal. Um, which is a really fascinating moment. And of course, you know, battle-like casualties amongst the poor West Indians who did the work. Um, and and then I kind of got, I, I lived in Barbados when I was a kid. My dad worked for Shell and he was posted out there. So I lived for, when I was a teenager, I lived in Barbados. I got fascinated by West Indian history. I wrote a book called The Sugar Barons about the right, oh, yeah. which is um, uh, something that's very kind of current. You know, we're talking about empire a lot at the moment. And my new book is about, um, it's about one day, the 20, uh, you won't guess what the significance of this date is. I can promise you it's the 29th of September, 1923. Uh, it, you got me. It's the day when the British empire reached its maximum territorial extent. Oh, very interesting. So I'm doing the empire on that day across from Australia through the, uh, you know, I follow the sun. So it starts in, in, um, Kiribati in the, in the Pacific islands, uh, and oh, travel cool. Australia, Burma, India, um, Africa, Kenya. There's masses going on, um, and there's some really interesting people. George Orwell, the writer, is in Burma. Um, Ian Foster's writing Passage to India. Uh, there's a big a conference going on in London with all the Dominion, the white, the white guys. You know, the Australians, South Africans, Canadians, um, and of course, there's this awful business uh, owing America far too much money and not being able to afford to pay it back, which is kind of causing the empire a few problems. To put it mildly, I can imagine. Um, I, I did. I see you have a book on Roanoke. 
It's not Roanoke. No, it's um, it's the book's called The Forgotten Colony, but it's not that one. It's one oh. in, one in what is now Suriname. Okay, okay. It was, a, it was a colony formed in the 17th century from people, the, the Cavaliers in the, in the English Civil War, the Cavaliers all went to Barbados to try and get away from Cromwell. And I they went set up this, this sort of independent colony in, in Suriname. Uh, and it's a really, it's a fantastic little mini story. Uh, it oh, rises yeah. and falls, they bring in slavery, that ruins everything. They get attacked by the Dutch, they fight, um, there's spies, there's... All, all sorts going on, and it's the most beautiful place to visit. If you ever been, if you ever go to Suriname, I recommend uh, going <laughs> up river. Uh, uh, well, I and where can we find these books? Because uh, I definitely want to check the forgotten or the lost forgotten colony. There, that sounds it, well. It, it's all on. It's all on MatthewParker.co.uk. That's got. It's got quite a lot. Of, it's got quite a lot on casino as well. It's got pictures. It's got map. Some maps. Some of the paperback editions that are coming out in here. The, the stingy publishers have taken some of the pictures out. So I don't know if that if my publisher in the US has done the same thing, but if it's certainly worth having a look at, at the casino pages as well as as well as the sort of general stuff. That'd be great. Awesome. I will uh we'll put that in the notes and we'll put a link up um and we'll post this to all the various social medias. And uh, again, Matthew, thank you so much. Uh this has been a lot of fun. If you have any projects coming up, I definitely would be interested in chatting again when your your book on the the pinnacle or the zenith of the British Empire comes out. That sounds pretty wild to me. Oh, I actually did want to ask you what um what are your thoughts on the Churchill thing, the monument? Do you have any interest or yeah? Is that a, I mean, it's I, a big conversation I, here in the I, U.S. Spent, right? You know, since since sort of moving on from the military, so I've spent most of my career really writing about empire and slavery and race. Um, and it's it, you know it's a massive subject, and it's something that the, 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 the sort of opinions are changing really fast. I think ten years ago, people was were were polled: was the British Empire a good thing? And over half the people responding said yes, it was. Now that figure has fallen way down. You know, really? attitudes are changing really fast. And the, the the statue of the slave trader in Bristol that should have come down a long time ago. Um, and as far as Churchill is, is a, a real sort of live wire subject that <laughs> gets a lot of emotion, um, particularly amongst sort of, you know, people who are knowledgeable about Indian history and about the, you know, the terrible famine that happened on Churchill's watch. And some would say, uh, and, you know, Churchill was clearly a racist, even for his time. You know, there were, there were plenty of people. He stood, you know, he suggested that the, um, the election for the, the Conservative Party, which he was leading in 1952, their slogan should be "Keep Britain White." So he, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Mr. Woke Diversity, shall we say? No, no um, he, he had he had other strengths. Um, you know, he was a great he was a great wartime leader. He, not a great military tactician, of course. Gallipoli, you know, didn't go too well. Um, Italy, <laughs> yeah, oh, Italy. He had, he had a weird spot for the soft underbelly of Europe. I don't know why that was always his thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he he was empire minded, and yes, you know, that's why that's why all those British troops were in North Africa. They were protecting Suez, which is obviously the crucial hub of of communication hub for the empire. Yeah, it's interesting. It it'll be it'll be um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it all fold unfolds with uh especially with because we're seeing it now where um ulysses s grant was just torn down in one city um there's a statue of lincoln that is being 
picketed and and potentially torn down. Andrew Jackson. So there are a lot of a lot like Churchill where there certainly are issues with some of these uh, historical figures. And uh, I don't know where I don't know where it ends though. That's my question. Yeah. I think the, the the great thing for, as a historian is people are engaging with history. People are actually yeah. saying that the, the history is Im- important. Um, and you know, and it's a way of sort of saying, how do we want to be different from what's happened before? And I think that's a great thing. And that's what history's for. It's in, mm-hmm. in order not to make the same mistakes again. Um, I, I would suggest. Yes. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for thank giving you me. Having me. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. All right. Again, this has been Cauldron. We've had Matthew Parker for the last hour. He's the author of the hardest fought battle of world war two, uh, Monte Cassino. And, uh, again, all of his, uh, his website information, all of the books and whatnot will be posted in the notes so that you can check those out. I highly suggest buying this. Uh, it's it's just a great collection uh, piece. It's great for your better understanding of World War II, but really uh, I found it to be most, um, most important in terms of telling the story of the soldiers on the ground. Uh, so if you have any interest in that, definitely pick up a copy of this. Uh, Monte Cassino, The Hardest Fought Battle of World War II. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye now.